We find ourselves again today in the Gospel of Mark. Now we're at the end of chapter 3, the fast-paced account of Mark, and we learn uh, much so far. We're well into the ministry of Jesus. He began when he was about 30 years old, so he's been around for about three decades, growing up with his carpenter father. He's been around for a while in preaching. He left his large family to go preaching with many siblings. He's launched his ministry in Judea. Uh, First, he cleansed the temple, and he had many months of ministry in Judea, and then he comes now to Galilee. And here, he has a long ministry, probably over a year long. So we're well into that now, into this Galilean ministry, and he's begun to remove illness from the land, one patient at a time, by doing his miraculous healings. He has complete power and dominance over demons, and it should be clear to anyone who's paying attention to him right now that he has the power of God. Two weeks ago, Eliot covered a section of chapter 3 where he selected the rest of his apostles. And then in verses 20 and 21, where his family was trying to stop Jesus from preaching and to bring him back home. You remember that. It's kind of an embarrassing scene. His family thought that he was out of his mind. And Eliot explained to us how this points to the authenticity of the Scripture as this type of detail adds credibility and reality to the Bible narrative. This theme continues this week as we pick it up in verse 31 of Mark 3. We're going to be looking at the last section of Mark chapter 3 and the first section of Mark 4 today, and I'll cover it in two sections. The first is Mark 3, 31 to 35. A little bit of a strange um, recount here, and so let's take a look at it together. We'll read verse 31 through 35 of Mark chapter 3. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they uh, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So it's uh, interesting. So Jesus took the interruption and turned it into a teaching lesson. It begins with a question. Who are my mother and my brothers? He's not saying that I don't know my family. Of course he knows his family. He knows exactly from a human standpoint who his mother is. And he knows exactly who his brothers and sisters are. And he's not dismissive of them either. It isn't that he doesn't love them. According to John chapter 19... When he was hanging on the cross, 
He said to Mary, do you remember how he was hanging there? And he looked at his half-brother John and he said, Behold, your mother. And then he looked at Mary and said, Behold, your son. And he committed his mother in a loving act of care into the protective care of John. He loved her even when on the cross, making sure that she was going to be cared for when he died and had gone to heaven. His love, he loved his brothers and sisters too, in fact. He loved them so much that he actually brought them into his kingdom. You can see this in Acts chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, where we read, And when they had, come, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. And then skipping to the end of, the, of verse 14, it says, All those with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So did he love them? Yes, he loved them enough to save them. He loved them enough to draw him to himself. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we are Christ's brothers, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. When you find out that an acquaintance is a Christian, don't you instantly realize that you have a special bond with them? Don't you feel a peace that you don't feel with your natural brothers and sisters who don't know Christ? This is true for me. The first stanza of Blessed Be the Tie That Binds sums it up nicely. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of Christian minds is like to that above. That's the first part. The second part and longer part of the message today covers Mark 4, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 20, and it's found on page 839 of the Pew Bible. In, this, in the Pew Bible, it's actually labeled the parable of the sower, but we'll see that um, that's probably not the best name for this parable. We'll see that later. It's probably the most well-known parable, and you've probably heard it before. But maybe today, God will show you something in here that you haven't seen before. And so let's look closely. So follow along as I read. Again, he began teach to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, 
growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you it has been given, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones that come along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that, ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the seedfulness of riches and the desires of things, other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Verse 1 starts off, again, he began to teach by the sea. He was now ready to teach. This is a good time to emphasize again that our Lord was always teaching in a setting such as this. He taught in a house, you remember, in Mark 2, where the paralytic was lowered to him through the roof. He taught in a synagogue in Mark 1 and 3. He taught in a desert. He taught in an upper room. He taught in a mountain in Matthew 5. He taught everywhere. He spoke to anyone who was willing and ready to be taught the truth. Large crowds, small crowds, disciples, sinners, tax collectors, religious leaders of Israel, men, women, Jews, non-Jews, poor, rich, educated, non-educated. He taught them all. Verse 1 continues, And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And the crowd had come from all different directions to hear from this Jesus of Nazareth. Some people came limping. Some people had to be carried, hoping to be healed. The poor and the oppressed, all joining the throng in the hope of deliverance. Some showing up simply out of curiosity, others out of boredom. And it says, he was teaching many things in parables. On this occasion, he taught using a parable. And a parable is the telling of a story. 
Para is a Greek word which means alongside. We say parallel, side by side. Then the main root word is balin, which means to throw. The idea is throwing or placing two things side by side. And that's what a parable is. It's placing a story next to the truth that is intended to be taught so that the story is the illustration of the truth to be made known. In what Jesus taught, parables were earthly stories with heavenly meanings. The story is told first, then the explanation. They are laid down side by side. But in his telling, the larger crowd will only receive the story. They will not receive the explanation. This is for reasons that we will see later. Jesus often taught in parables. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 39 different parables are recorded. But it's interesting to note that John records none. In Mark, there are nine. But this parable is one of the few that is found in all three. Mark, Matthew, and Luke. It underscores the extreme importance of this particular parable. So why would Jesus teach him parables? First, parables spark an interest in the listener, don't they? People are immediately drawn into a story. We are always interested in how it develops and how it concludes, and it holds our attention. The second is that parables encourage us to think. Parables are thought-provoking. Jesus didn't tell a parable just to be interesting. It was to be insightful, instructive, and to provoke a deeper and profound thinking. The third thing about a parable and why he taught in parables is that they are unforgettable. Parables have a unique way of attaching themselves to our memories so that they remain with us. The fourth is that parables can make the truth plain. They are a very effective form of teaching because they enable to, the listener to visualize the truth. It kind of makes a word picture, and a picture is worth a thousand words. The fifth thing that parables do is save words. There's an economy of time and words in parables, and it would take much more time to explain as well a concept. And the last thing that parables do, it's an important one in this instance, is that they can conceal truth from the believers because they have two parts. Conceal truth from unbelievers, that is. Without hearing Jesus' interpretation of this parable, it was a way that the truth was intentionally concealed to unbelieving ears who had already heard the truth again and again, but had refused to understand it. And so Jesus taught by use of parables as he pushed out into the sea and sat in the boat. And this is the story that he told. Start at verse 3, warming up to it. It says, in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. This is a startling way to begin a story. 
Basically, he's saying, listen up. Give me your undivided attention. You must listen and hear what I'm about to tell you. Behold, following listens means look at this. It's like a double attention getter now where he says, behold and listen together. Now he talks about a sower, and a sower was common in those days. They may have even seen a sower standing on a hill nearby as he's preaching. From the sower's home in a village, he would go out to a field. Usually that field was his. He would have a leather bag attached to his waist, and inside the bag was seed, usually wheat or barley, And upon arriving at the field, he would put his hand into the bag and grab a handful, and he would begin to toss the seed into the field. He would toss it in all directions. The story begins, the sore went out to sow, but that is not the primary focus. He goes now quickly to what is the focus in verse 4. Verse 4 says, As he sowed, Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. As he was sowing, this is the unfolding process of sowing. So it's not just one handful. It's thrown again and again and again in very liberal amounts. The difference is in how the seed is received. The reception of the seed is determined by the condition of the soil it lands on. So this verse says some seed fell along the path. So it talks about the hard soil. The seed landing there could not get down into the dirt and germinate. could only lay on the surface. There it was exposed to the birds who would always follow the sower. The birds were not stupid. They, uh, they knew where the food was. So they followed the sower around the field. Whenever a seed would fall beside the road, the birds would fly down and gobble it up immediately. The sower, walking through the field, walking paths would be there, and people would take shortcuts over the field and making those walking paths. And much, time they would, much of the time, they would wear down some of the field, and a footpath would be clearly seen. But as he tosses it out, some of it falls on this beaten-down soil, and it lays on the surface and it has no entrance to the soil, and the birds quickly eat it up. Verse 5 says, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. So this is shallow soil. So it's soil that's very thin, and there's a rock layer underneath, usually limestone. It's a thin layer of soil, maybe only a couple of inches thick, on top of rock. So when the seed fell on it, notice, it immediately sprang up because it had root. Seed can enter the soil, so there's an initial response. If it does start growing quickly, uh, that's good. But when the roots push down, there is no way they can draw moisture because of the rock. So the roots are withered, and after the initial quick growth, the plant withers and dies, or at least produces no fruit. Verse 7 says, 
Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. This ground was infested with the roots of many thorns, most beneath the surface of the soil. The weeds may not have been seen. The tops of weeds might have been um, cut or sickled or died from the sun, but the weeds' roots were still very strong and choked it. And it yielded no crop because the weeds grow stronger than the wheat or grain. The weeds will always grow faster than the good seed as the weeds begin to grow. The thorns begin to thicken, and soon they choke out that growing from the good seed. Verse 8 says, And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This was soil that was not hard, not shallow, and it's not filled with weed roots, but it's a good soil that is fertile, broken up, moist, fertile, receptive, and deep. When the same seeds sown by the same sower lands on this good soil, there is an entirely different response. The difference is not the sower or the seed. It's entirely in the soil. As they grew up and increased, this gives the idea of long-term steady growth and increased an increase over sustained period. This is the story that our Lord Jesus Christ gave. It was a common story, and the hearers of the story immediately understood the picture on the outside of the story, at least. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, hear. He said this to the thousands who were there. It was a large crowd. As he tells this, he is emphasizing the fact that there is more to this story than what is on the surface. He's inviting them to ask. There are important ramifications for your spirit and eternal destiny based on this story. It's important to give strict attention and most careful discernment to the story. We imply here that he dismissed the crowd and most went back to their homes and places of work but not all. Verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. So some of those people came in and wanted to know more, but most went away. The small inner circle begins asking him, What's the point of this parable? What are you teaching us? What's the meaning? That's the questions he wanted them to ask. Verse 11, and he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. He said, To you, and he was probably pointing at them, To you has been given as the free exercise of God's grace the secret of the kingdom of God, not to the world, not to the crowd, but to you. It is a knowledge that is dependent on divine illumination and divine enlightenment. Unless God gives it, it will never be known or understood. The fact that he calls it the secret or mystery, depending on which translation you have, means something that could not be known otherwise apart from divine revelation. 
You could search the entire world over and consult the great minds and you would never come to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, except God take divine initiative and make it known to you. It's a secret that's now revealed. Man sees not as God sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Here he allows us to see what God sees as he looks down from his throne above. In Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If the Lord searched the heart and test the minds to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Now we go on to verse 12. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus now quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10 of the chapter which Kenneth read to us earlier. Remember the call of the prophet Isaiah. He went into the temple after King Uzziah's death, and he was given a vision to the throne room, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's a thrilling passage. The seraphim were crying, Holy, holy, holy. And he was so overcome by his own sin that the Lord had to touch his lips to cleanse him with a burning coal. And then the Lord asks, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. Immediately after that, the Lord said to Isaiah something to this effect, and I'm paraphrasing here. Go and bear my message, and know this, that only one-tenth of them will believe. Your message will not be received well, but so that you will remain encouraged and steadfast, so that you will not lose heart, so that you will remain faithful in your mission and not abandon the message. I have kept one-tenth unto myself. They are the holy seed. They are the remnant of those who do and who will believe. Jesus, the master teacher, explains to them that it will be the very same in your ministry as it was in his there will only be a remnant who will respond to the seed when it is sown into the hearts of men. Jesus says in verse 12, it is done this way so that they will not be saved. These are hard words from Jesus. And this might be pointing back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which David explained last week in Mark 3, 29, uh, 23 and 29. Jesus now says he teaches in parables in order that, while seeing, quote, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So the door that had opened when Jesus came into his ministry, it was open to this generation to hear the gospel and the extension of grace to the religious leaders of Israel. It was now shut. There would be no more enlightenment 
or illumination to the leaders of Israel. To them, he'll speak in parables from now on. But to those who has received the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and humbled themselves and repented and come like little children and believe on the Savior, Jesus Christ, there is now given to them the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus now proceeds to give the true meaning to the story. Without this, it is just a story. Without the interpretation, it goes one ear and out the other, as it did with the crowd. And you can imagine some of those in the crowd walking away thinking, wow, we came all the way out here for that. But they didn't know. So now we go on to verse 13 where he says to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So when he says all the parables, that gives us a clue. It means that this is the master parable. This is the master key that unlocks all the others. Verse 14, it starts, The sower sows the word. Note, the emphasis is not on the sower. That's all that Mark records of what Jesus tells us. The sower sows the word. The sower is Jesus and all those who spread the gospel. It represents his public and private ministry and proclamation of the word of God. The seed is identified here as the word of God. There's a great message for us here in our evangelistic efforts. We cannot understand where a particular heart is. If we only sow to what we perceive as good soil, we will be mistaken. It is only God who knows the condition of the soil. It is not our responsibility to be sizing up the condition of the soil. It's our responsibility to be distributing the word of God as far and as wide as we possibly can, with as much seed as we can, and to trust God to cultivate the soil. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So this is the explanation of verse 5. Their heart has been trampled and packed so hard, we call this the hard heart. There is a crust on the exterior of their heart. So it's like the soil beside the road where the feet and heels are continually walking, and where the word is sown, they are under the teaching and ministry of the word, and when they hear, Satan comes and immediately takes what they learned away. Wherever the teacher is sowing the good seed, Satan is also there. He is followed behind, he following behind the teacher, the messenger, and immediately, he can snatch up the seed so that it cannot do its work. In verse 15, the word of God never penetrates the soil. They hear it, but it does not take root. It does not go down into the soil of the heart. There is no conviction of sin. There's no soul searching. There's no self-examination. There's no taking stock of where one stands before the Lord. There's no taking to heart the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Even when Jesus Christ himself sows it, it may be gobbled up. 
by Satan and taken away. This represents the human heart, which is completely insensitive to the word of God. They hear it, but they do nothing with it. These people are not concerned with the things of God. They are indifferent to spiritual truth. And as a result, the devil snatches away the word from their heart. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The sad fact is, Satan's initials are etched into their hearts and their soul is hardened and they can't understand the mystery of the word of God. The problem is not with the sower and it's not with the seed. The problem is with the individual heart. These are characters like Pharaoh who hardened their own hearts or like Pontius Pilate who asked cynical questions like, what is truth? or like the Pharisees who have trampled the gospel with malice. When a sower approaches these people, these people are looking for an escape. This is the first soil and the first heart. J.C. Ryle, the writer, pastor, and evangelistic preacher of the late 1800s, says about these people with his 50-plus years of experience seeing them, these are those who hear sermons but pay no attention to them, They go to a place of worship for form or fashion or appear respectable before men, but they take no interest whatever in the preaching. It seems to them a mere matter of words and names and unintelligible talk. It is neither money or food or drink or clothes nor company. As they sit under the sound of it, they are taking up but thinking of other things. It matters nothing whether it is the law or the gospel. It produces no more effect on them than a water on a stone. And at the end, they go away knowing no more than when they came in. Ryle goes on, there are myriads of professing Christians in this state of the soul. There is hardly a church, a chapel, where scores of them are not to be found. Sunday after Sunday, they allow the devil to catch away the good seed that is sown on them on the surface of their hearts. Week after week, they live on without faith or fear or knowledge or grace, feeling nothing, caring nothing, taking no more interest in religion than if Christ had never died on the cross at all. And in this state, they often die and are buried and are lost forever in hell. This is a mournful picture, but only too true, unquote. Now verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Here is the shallow heart. It is the explanation of verse 6 we will call the shallow heart. This is the heart which had soil which was fertile and moist, but it was shallow. There's a rock layer right underneath the soil and there could never be any depth. This is a very shallow person spiritually. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy. There is no resistance 
here. No opposition. They love to hear the truth. They love to hear about heaven. They love to hear about the second coming of Christ. They love to hear about forgiveness of sins. They love to hear about the grace of God and the doctrine of justification and the awesomeness and greatness of God. They love to hear about all of this. They are not looking for an exit. They are taking notes when the seed is sown. They receive it with joy. And when the service is over, they're not rushing out or lingering in the lobby. There is joy in their heart because they have heard the truth of the word of God. But verse 17, And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So these shallow hearts have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. You see, there was no depth in their heart, no depth to their soul. There was never a deep conviction of sin. There was no deep soul searching at the point of entrance to the kingdom, no deep commitment to lordship of Jesus Christ. There has never been deep repentance in these souls. Everything is on the surface just a shallow and superficial nature to their life. They were so joyful, they thought, now all my problems are behind me, and everything will just work out rosy in my life. And once they are in the professing body of believers, though, having never converted in their heart, their afflictions come, and then persecution comes because they are standing too close to other believers, and some of the slings and arrows begin to fly at them. And they are now at a point where they fall away. The truth of the matter is that they are fickle and superficial, and there is no true saving faith in their lives. They are the characters in Pilgrim's Progress, like Mr. Temporary and Mrs. Turnback. They are shallow people. There is no depth within their heart and soul. They are like the crowd on Palm Sunday as Jesus came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and people with their palm branches are laying them down and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just five days later, these same people are saying, crucify him, crucify him. But there was immediate joy as he came riding into Jerusalem on Sunday, but on Friday... They were among the bloody, thirsty crowd. They are so shallow. They are so superficial. There is no super perseverance or steadfastness or endurance. They go up like a rocket, but down like a rock. There is no gospel reality in them. Their faith is non-saving faith. They are unwilling to sacrifice for Christ, suffer hardship for the gospel, they only want the blessings and benefits from God, but would have no part in the discipleship. They want a Christianity on their own terms. This is the second heart of which Jesus speaks. J.C. Ryle says of these people, there are many in every congregation which hear the gospel who are just in this state of soul. They are not careless and inattentive hearers like many around them, and therefore tempted to think 
well of their own condition. They feel a pleasure in the preaching to which they listen and therefore flatter themselves that they must have grace in their hearts. And yet they are thoroughly deceived. Old things have not yet passed away. There is no real work of conversion in their inward man. With all their feelings, affections, joys, hopes, and desires, they are actually on the high road to destruction. Verse 18, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. We've been, we have seen hardened and shallow hearts, both under the sound of the gospel. And the third here is called the crowded heart. It is the soil in verse 7 in which beneath the surface there is a root structure of weeds. These weeds have been chopped off at the surface, but the root structure remains beneath. It is crowded with worldly preoccupation, with worldly pleasures and worldly pursuits, and there is not a primary pursuit of the kingdom of God. There is much too much going on inside this heart, too much that crowds out the good seed to take root for there to be a fruit of salvation. It is choked out. There is too much going on inside this heart. These are the ones which have heard the word again and again. They have heard a full disclosure of the word. And as Jesus described the crowd who had followed him from town to town, around the perimeter of the Sea of Galilee, they loved to see the miracles, they loved to hear the sermons, and they had heard it and they had seen it. Verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So these people are living distracted lives, whether it be business or social life or money or family or whatever it is, they are self-deceived into thinking that they can have Christ in one hand and something else in the other as their primary pursuits and purposes in life. They have an intense pleasure for other things, more popularity, more power, the urge to be accepted. The effect is the choking of the word so that it becomes unfruitful. There's no real fruit of repentance, no confession of sin, no true obedience, no hunger to be righteous, no passion for hearing the word, they who have one foot in the word and one foot in the world. These are like the wife of Lot, who is always looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're also like the rich young ruler who wanted eternal life in one hand, but was not willing to give up living for the worldly possessions he had on the other. These are those whose hearts are so filled with the cares of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of their eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that there is no room for the good seed to bring about conversion and new birth. J.C. Riles gives his assessment of this thorny type, the crowded one. These are they who attend the preaching of Christ's truth and, to a certain extent, obey it. Their understanding ascends to it, ascends to it, their judgment approves of it, 
Their conscience is affected by it. Their affections are in favor of it. They acknowledge all that is right and good and worthy of all reception. They even abstain from many things which the gospel condemns and adopt many things which the gospel requires. But here, unhappily, they stop short. Something appears to chain them fast, and they never get beyond a certain point in their religion. And, they grant, and the grand secret of their condition is the world, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things prevent the word from having its full effect in their souls, with everything apparently that is promising and favorable in their spiritual state, they stand still. They never come to the standard of the New Testament Christianity. They bring no fruit to perfection. And verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The fourth soil in verse 8 is explained here. These are the ones whom seed was sown on the good soil. It is made receptive by God. It is not shallow, but it's deep. It's not hard, but there is softness. It's broken up. It's not crowded with the cares of the world. These things have been, those things have been stripped away by the Holy Spirit to prepare the heart to receive this good seed. We will call this heart the receptive heart. It is fertile. It is moist. It is broken up. It has been worked. There, are, there has been preparation. It says, they hear the word and they accept it. They receive it. They embrace it. They eternalize, internalize it. They own it. They possess it. They reflect on it. They retain it. They live it. They obey it. They follow it. And it is in the present tense, which means that they are continually accepting the word. When the word speaks, it's binding on their lives. There is a sweet submission of their life to whatever the scripture requires of them. There is no trying to evade the teaching that they hear. There is no dodging or delaying. They're not trying to negotiate with God. They're all serious about it. They take it head on. And changes are made in their lives which are difficult. They're looking at things like Jesus would. So our so-called friends fall away, or we find ourselves uncomfortable around them. Notice it says, and bear fruit in the present tense. They're continually bearing fruit. And it's not just one little bud on a branch, but there's much fruit. There's noticeable fruit. There's identifiable fruit. And it's not just the fruit that pops up but quickly fades when hard time comes, but this fruit remains. This person is the one who is truly converted and born again of the Spirit of God. And the true evidence of their salvation is not in the initial burst of joy. The evidence of their true salvation is the long-term fruit that is being produced in their lives. There is ongoing discipleship. 
There is ongoing obedience. There is ongoing good works for the glory of God. Note that not every Christian is going to have the same level of fruitfulness. Some bear fruit more than others, some 30, some 60, some 100. But fruit-bearing is the mark of all true believers. It is not walking an aisle. It is not repeating a prayer. It is not joining a church. And it's not even in baptism. These are not the true evidence of a converted life. The true proof is in the fruit-bearing. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 16 to 19, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll know them by their fruit. It's clear, it's unmistakable, and it's marked by purpose. The one who is genuinely saved is the one who receives the word of God, and it produces a change in his life. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And they bear fruit. Note that it's singular, fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is then meaning all nine of these attributes. They come into life once the person is converted in a noticeable and tangible way. I quote J.C. Riles again. These are they who really receive Christ's truth to the bottom of their hearts, believe it implicitly, and obey it thoroughly. And these, the fruits of that truth, will be seen, uniform, plain, unmistakable results in heart and life. Sin will be truly hated, mourned over, resisted, and renounced. Christ will be truly loved, trusted in, followed, loved, and obeyed. Holiness will show itself in all their life, in humility, spiritual mindedness, patience, meekness, and charity. There will be something that can be seen. The true work of the Holy Spirit cannot be hidden. There will always be some people in this state of soul where the gospel is faithfully preached. Their numbers may likely be few compared to the worldly around them. Their experience and degree of spiritual attainment may differ widely. Some are bringing forth 30, some 60, and some a hundredfold, but the fruit of the seed falling under the good ground will always be of the same kind. They will always be visible repentance, visible faith in Christ, and visible holiness of life. Without these things, there is no saving religion. End quote. And one more note. It's good. It's, it's God who ultimately prepares the heart. It's God. 
but we see that his more usual method is by his sovereign direction of the situations in people's lives. He may allow situations where the person he loves experiences some adversity to prepare their heart. He may bring a conversation with someone into their day to correct some error the evil one has planted into their head, to bring a a start of conviction and repentance, or bring them closer to his word and himself. God's plan may just be to use you to help cultivate his hard, rocky, or crowded soil. Be ready to see these situations in your daily life. Pray that God helps you to recognize and be ready for them. But change may never happen, or it may happen slowly in God's timing. He is in charge. But do not be surprised when you see a true conversion. We should marvel at the way he directs it. In Luke 23, verses 42 and 43, we see this familiar exchange between Jesus that same scene where we saw Jesus talking to his mother and his brother. But here we see Jesus and the man who had undoubtedly been one of the hard-hearted people. But the Lord was working through circumstances to humble him and draw him. God had not given up on this man. It took a ton of adversity and finally being executed alongside Jesus. But as the one we only know as the thief on the cross was hanging there. We see his broken, humble, repentant heart open up to the one who revealed himself at the end. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the master key parable because Jesus has given it to us that we might have a godly insight to the rest of the parables, that we might understand how it works as we share the gospel with those around us. As we proclaim the gospel to those outside of this church and as we interact with one another inside this church, as we minister to our own children and our own family, as God puts us in a car with them driving somewhere, as he puts them on our hearts and gives us the ability to send a message to them instantly through that gadget within our reach, as he puts them around us in the situations that we find ourselves in. Whenever the sower goes out to sow the seed, whether it be in a church service like this, a Sunday school class, a Bible study, in the front seat of a car, or across the breakfast table, wherever it may be, these are always the four types of heart that will respond to the word of God. May we be encouraged to know that God and his sovereignty is always preparing the soil. And every time and every place, soil is being prepared. So let us not be discouraged about this. God goes before us. He is the preparer of souls. And it is our responsibility to sow the good seed wherever we go. Our job is to sow as much seed as we possibly can. We need to get as much of the word of God out as far and wide as we possibly can. 
and we can rest that he is the one who prepares the hearts to receive the seed into the soil. And if some of it is rejected, be encouraged to know that there will be some who will be brought into the kingdom of God as you and I sow the good seed. Let's pray. Lord, we are under no illusions that we are so special here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church that we are not expecting birds in the air swooping down in this church now to try and pluck out the seed which was sown here today. There are not some in this building now who want to escape the sound of the seed which has been sown. Lord, we ask that you pursue them. You give them no rest until you make the soil of their soul tender and ready to acknowledge you for who you are. Acknowledge that they have sinned against you. Repent and receive your forgiveness, which you have promised them. For we ask this in Jesus' name.